We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, I love being in the Gospel. So if you have your Bibles, turn there. Where we left off last week, we're in Jesus' most famous sermon, some of his most popular words that we ever hear, the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen the introduction, and today we pick up in verse 21 through verse 30. But we left off last week, and I didn't cover this verse, and that was intentional because this week we're going to see the implications of it. In verse 20, Matthew chapter 5, listen to what it says. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you ask a, a, a Jewish person at this time, if you said, hey, who, uh, tell me two people that you are for sure getting to heaven. They would say a scribe and a Pharisee. They are viewed as the most religious. They were the ones who they knew were getting into heaven. They were going to enter the kingdom. The, the scribes were those. Unlike today, we, we have Bibles in our hands. We have Bibles on our phones. We have Bibles on our screens. To have a Bible, you had to handwrite it. And it was the scribes who meticulously, with great detail, hand-wrote Scripture. So most people, most of the Jewish people had never held the Word of God or read directly from the Word of God themselves. They had to trust the scribes and the Pharisees to interpret it for them. And the scribes, as they translated, wrote Scripture, copied it, they also became interpreters of Scripture. And their interpretation, many believed, was, was, was valid. And what we see, Jesus is saying, hey, think of the person that you're like, that's the most godly, holy person I've ever met. The person that you think is like most likely to get on heaven based on their efforts. Think of that person. And Jesus is taking them saying, that's not enough. That will not be enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness has to surpass those that you think most highly of. And Jesus, today, we're starting to get into the weeds of the application of this sermon. And I want to tell you, Jesus made the crowd, the disciples in the crowd listening, he made them a little uncomfortable. What he said wasn't something to comfort them. It was something to have them chase after Christ, to realize their sinfulness and their need for a Savior, and that it could only be found in him. So today, as we go through this passage, if you're honest with yourself, you're going to be a little uncomfortable. Some of you may squirm in your seats a little bit. These are the words of Jesus, okay? We're walking through Scripture. This is what the passage we have today as we journey through Scripture. And we're a church that we believe the Word of God is true. We believe it's a living book that shows us how we are to live. And Jesus is speaking some heavy application to each one of us. So as you listen to this, don't be thinking, person sitting next to me here needs to hear this. Oh, I need to make sure my friend hears this. No, this is for you. You receive it. You listen. You get honest with your heart before God. And I'll tell you, I say this often, but it's so true. The hardest person for you to be honest with is often yourself. So we're going to come under the Word of God today. Jesus has some words to say, some very powerful words, and we're going to hear from him. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 through 30. Hear the word of our Lord. You can look in your Bible, or as always, the words are on the screen. You have heard that it was said to those of old, 
You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come quickly and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks lustfully at a woman, looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye caused you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of, the mem- of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. God, your word declares that all men, we are like grass, And all our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And Lord, may this be the word that is faithfully preached today. Lord, unless you speak today, nothing of any significance will be spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Jesus starts off with the words, you have heard. Because he's about to address something that was very familiar to the Jewish people. They had all heard this. It was almost impossible to be a Jewish person living in the day of Jesus without having heard this. Jesus goes and quotes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. He quotes from the sixth commandment. The first of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with God. But then the last part of the Ten Commandments deal with our relationship with one another. And what we see is that those two are connected. Never miss that how you interact with others is a commentary on your relationship with God. It speaks of what you believe about Him, how you're connected to Him, where you find your source of joy and security and, and worth and value. And here Jesus starts off with, you have heard that it was said, of those of old, you shall not murder. Now of all the Ten Commandments, this is probably the least broken of the Ten Commandments. I would say most certainly is. So Jesus starts with an easy one. Probably most of the crowd's going, we've never committed murder. I venture to say that's us in this room. Seems easy. We're good, Jesus. We haven't committed murder. We haven't done this. So Jesus starts with one where they're all going, we are good, we haven't committed murder. And Jesus is going to shatter their uh, illusion of self-righteousness. See, one of the things that Jesus continually confronts and deals with is the illusion of self-righteous salvation. You cannot save yourself. You cannot be good enough to save yourself. He's just come out and said, hey, unless you're better than the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Our self-righteousness is insufficient. 
And Jesus is going to deal with that very directly. He says, whoever commits murder is liable to judgment. Realize this. We see that sin on this earth has consequences. You murder somebody, you're probably going to prison. That's the consequence of sin. It doesn't really surprise any of us. All of us know that. And yet God is gracious. He will forgive us of our sin. So, so realize this. This is an important distinction to make. God's grace is sufficient to forgive you of any and every sin you ever have, ever will, or ever could commit. Even a sin of murder, he will forgive you. Yet God's grace is so rich. Listen to this. It's so rich that he will not remove the consequences of that sin here on earth. He'll remove the eternal consequence, which the eternal consequence is the fire of hell separated from God. We don't like to talk about hell. I don't like to talk about hell. Some places it's become, we don't talk about it. It makes people uncomfortable. But guess what? Jesus talks about it more than anybody else because he knows it's a place that many are headed and he wants to warn them. Turn from your sin. See, there is a real judgment. So don't be surprised at this. Your sin, it'll often have consequences here on this earth. And guess what? That's God's goodness to you. That's God's grace. I'll say to my kids when they've done something disobedient and we have to enact a consequence, this is because we love you. This is God's good grace upon you. We want it to taste so bitter that you don't desire sin any longer. Sin's not to mean, meant to have a sweet taste. The world tries to take sin and say it's acceptable, it's okay. God says this is rebellion against me. It separates you from me. It separates you from other people. And you live outside of how I've designed you. God is our creator and he's made us to live a certain way. And sin keeps us from living as he's designed us. So here he says... Whoever commits murder is liable to judgment. In verse 22, he says, But I say to you, Jesus is now going to give his interpretation. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they say all the crowds were astonished because he taught as one with authority. Here's how the religious leaders taught in Jesus' day. They would say, well, Rabbi Hillel says this, and Rabbi Shammai says this. They would quote all the rabbis' interpretation. But Jesus comes. He is God. And he's God in flesh. And he says, but here's what I say to you. You've already said don't murder. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother, everyone, get this, everyone. That's all of us. Every one of us who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. To be angry with our brother, to be angry in our uh, a sinful anger is, brings the judgment of God upon us. We all deserve the wrath of God for our anger. And I would say if anyone in this room is sitting here going, well, I've never been at that type of angry. I've never had sinful anger. I would say there's a good chance you've completely deceived yourself and you've misunderstood Scripture and you misunderstood the reality of who we are. Now, we've all struggled with this. Like I said, this is going to make us all a little uncomfortable because none of us escape this. This is Jesus speaking. He says, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. After the fall, 
in the Old Testament in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve have two boys, Cain and Abel. And listen to what God says to Cain. Cain has a problem. And in verse 5 of chapter 4, it says this, But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Hear this though. And if you do not do well... Sin is crouching at your door. Its desires for you, but you must rule over it. Sin desires to control you, to rule you, to dominate you. Our enemy, Satan, he disguises himself as an angel of light, meaning he looks attractive, he looks good, he looks like something good, and our world wants to call sin good, and that's what our enemy does. And here he's saying the very first thing we see in the garden, anger leading to murder. No one murders anyone without first being angry. That's your response. You're angry, and that angry grows, and it consumes you, and it leads to murder. And Jesus gives three examples of what anger does. He says, anyone who's angry with his brother is liable to judgment. So that sin of anger toward your brother means that you deserve the judgment and wrath of God. That's what we deserve. That's the starting place. We don't deserve God's mercy and grace. We deserve eternal separation from Him because of our sin. Yet God's grace is rich. His grace is beautiful. His grace is glorious. And here, He says, whoever is angry with his brother. Now, some of you are thinking, hey, Jesus was angry. Remember, He turned over the temples? He turned over the tables in the temple? Remember, remember Jesus' anger? He... Um, um, they were healing on the Sabbath and the religious leaders got onto him and he got upset with that. Remember he said to the religious leaders, hey, you blind fools. So is Jesus, he never sinned, but yet he's angry. There's an anger, there's a righteous anger. Know this, Jesus' anger was always about the glory of God, offenses done toward God, and offenses done toward others. Jesus' anger is never a self-righteous anger. I venture to say the majority of our anger is about ourselves. Somebody's done me wrong. Somebody disrespected me. Somebody said something and I don't like it and I'm angry about it. And here's what happens as you get older. Your anger begins to look a little different. It might not be the temper tantrum of a five-year-old. It may not be the slamming of the door and stomping off of a teenager. It may be subtle jabs, thoughts, things that you can say and do because you're angry. Little things to get at a person. See, this is something we all struggle with. And li listen to what he says here next. He says, the second thing he says, whoever insults his brother is liable to the council. You ever been in those situations where you find somebody talking about somebody and they start to insult and you start to feel this desire? Hey, I'm going to jump in on this. I want to be a part of this. And you even feel justified in jumping in and insulting. That's a form of anger. 
That's a form of hatred and wrath toward another image bearer of Christ. And we justify it because we go, hey, they deserve it. They've done something to hurt me. And there's a common saying that hurt people hurt people. When you find somebody who's really hurting, they're probably lashing out in subtle ways. But as we get older, we, we, we sort of dress up our anger. We make it look less vile. And in that, in some ways, it becomes more vile. Look at the third thing he says. He says, whoever, this is in verse um, 22 still, whoever says to his brother, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You fool. That's slander. Whoever slanders another person, that's an act of violence against another person. That's an act of anger. That's an act of wanting them dead. Wanting their reputation dead. Have you ever had a conversation where you delighted in helping somebody feel more, think less of another person? Where you wanted to do what we call character assassination, where you wanted to lower their view of someone? You see, if we're honest, every one of us have been here. All of us have done this in some way. We're all guilty. And the reality is that we all deserve the hell of fire. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. And when you understand your sin and the depth and the rebellion of your sin, God's grace becomes so much more rich, becomes so much more full. A person who doesn't understand their sin doesn't always understand the grace and the rich mercy of God. His grace is glorious. His grace is beautiful. And the more you understand God's grace, the more you extend it to others. Look at what he says here. Verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Our relationship with one another impacts our relationship with God. Hear this, if you are not on right terms with another brother or sister, it's impacting your relationship with God. We, we can tell how people's relationship with God often going. If you know people that often talk harshly to people, speak negatively about people, realize that their relationship with God is in an unhealthy spot, that they become self-righteous. A sign of self-righteous is you go, hey, I'm going to talk down to these other people because I'm up here. I'm self-righteous. And that's a declaration that the grace of God has not permeated your life at the level that God would have it permeate. And the reality is, we all deal with this at some level. We all struggle with this. And Jesus here, he's making his listeners uncomfortable as he speaks this. He says, first be reconciled with your brother and then come to terms uh, quickly and then come off for your gift. When we take communion, we say, hey, communion we're to be right with God, but if you're going to be right with God, you need to be right with other people. So go get right with other people before you come and take communion. Here's the idea. You're, taking, uh, you're coming and offering your gift. Be right with one another. Or your worship with God cannot be how it's intended to be. Oftentimes we can show up here week after week to worship with the body. And we may miss experiencing what God has for us. 
Because so often we enter this place without having dealt with some of the things that God has called us to deal with, to take seriously. First, be reconciled to your brother. He says, do it quickly. Now, one of the things we do every week, on Tuesday mornings, I gather with a group. Some of them are on our staff. Some of them are others. And, and we just look at the passage that's being preached that week. And I'll just ask questions. We'll all work through it and talk through it. And, and as we talk through this, uh, somebody said, hey, um, in an indirect culture, this idea of quickly dealing with things doesn't really exist. You see, if somebody's done you wrong, what I was told is, well, you'll go tell somebody else. You won't go to that person and say, hey, I'm sorry. I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I'm sorry. You'll go and you'll tell somebody else, hey, listen, this happened, this happened, and then they'll go tell that person, and it's an indirect way. You see, God, he's the one who has allowed all the nations to exist. And one of the beautiful things about all our cultures, all our cultures, they all have a, a, a marker of the image of God within them, yet all our cultures are broken and impacted by the fall. And as a church, we don't live by the culture that we were born in primarily. No, we live by the culture of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God says, no, if you've done somebody wrong, you go quickly. Don't delay. Go and tell somebody, hey, I confess I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. And I'm sorry. That's how we're to live. Now, living like that's radical. God calls us to a radical lifestyle. That's to be one of the most attractive things about the church, a people who forgive one another, who love one another. He says, do it quickly, lest you be handed over to the court and you be handed over to the judge and you be handed over to the guard and put prison. You see, the ultimate reality is we all have an accuser. Our accuser is Satan. And he says, they've sinned. You have sinned. And let me tell you, before that accuser, you and I just stand there and go, guilty, as charged. I've sinned. But we have an advocate who steps into our place. He's a substitute. He takes our place. And he says, charge me with sin. I say, there's no chance to charge you off. I'll take their spot. They're in me. I'm in them. I'm their advocate. And our advocate is Jesus Christ. That's the glorious grace. You see, the more we see how far we've fallen of the glory of God, the more we see how marvelous our, the grace of God is. When we've been offended, we personally go to another person. Let me tell you the people you're most likely to be angry with and hurt in your anger. It's the people that you're closest to and the people that you have power over. That's who you're most likely to hurt. What do I mean by that? It, it, husbands and wives hurting each other. They've been hurt, so they hurt one another, going back and forth in anger. Parents, in their anger, taking it out on their children. Employers, in their anger and frustration, taking it out on somebody who serves under them. We let our anger be displayed before those who we feel safest with, who we feel like they can't do anything back to us because we've got some position of power. We've got some position of authority. No, it ought not to be. Parents, yes, there's times that we have to 
by the grace of God, have consequences upon our sin, upon the sin of our children, to teach them, show them in love. Employers, there's times that employees, people working with you, that there needs to be correction. But we do so with great grace and great compassion and great mercy and for their good. We don't do it out of our own anger. Now in verse 27, Jesus comes to another issue. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Now the Ten Commandments, murder is certainly the number one thing that people would say I'm free of. Adultery, though it's prevalent in our culture, prevalent in our world, it's probably the one most people are looking going, hey, maybe I haven't done that. So Jesus starts with two that people are going, hey, we're good. Although certainly adultery is prevalent. Jesus, in verse 28, says, But I say to you. Now, adultery, God designed marriage. One man, one woman, the first institution, a glorious thing. And adultery is the breaking of the sexual bond between a husband and wife by one of them going with another person. That's what adultery is. And in verse 28, he says, But I say to you, everyone, get this, he's speaking to everyone. He's speaking to you here today. If you're the person going, hey, somebody else needs to hear this, somebody else deals with this more, listen. If you're honest with yourself, all of us have struggled with this at some level. Don't start sizing everybody else up. God wants to speak to you. He says, Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That word, a look, is a longing look, a gazing look. Perhaps the most recognized person in the Old Testament is King David. King David is called a man after God's own heart. Jesus in this sermon is dealing with the heart. He's doing heart surgery. He's coming and saying, hey, you think because you haven't done the action you're okay? Let's look at your heart. And David's called a man after God's own heart. Yet what do we know about David? Adultery. Murder. You see, it's the self-righteous person that struggles with David. They look and go, I'm not as bad as David. David committed adultery. David killed a person. I'm not that bad. Jesus is breaking down saying, David's called a man from my own heart because when he saw his sin and the implications of his sin, he repented and turned back to Jesus. He repented and ran to God. He confessed his sin when confronted when he saw it. That's what a man after God's own heart does. If you're here today and you're going, hey, I want to be a person after God's own heart. As you sit here today, if God reveals these areas of sin in your life, you need to acknowledge and agree with God. Go, that is sin and rebellion, God. And I want to run from it and run to you. I know I'm forgiven by grace of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're forgiven by his grace. Yet sin wants to entangle you and keep you from living out of the reality of who you are. So here he says, anyone who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lust is a controlling sin. Most sin, as we saw with Cain and Abel, sin wants to control you. We often refer to that in terms of addiction. An addiction is a sin that's got dominance in your life. 
Let me tell you, lust wants to dominate you. It wants to own you. It wants to take over. We live in a day and time where there's a pandemic of implications of lust like I think the world has never seen. With everybody having phones in their hands and computers, the opportunity to see pornography and be impacted by that is unlike any other time in history. Throughout my pastoral ministry, I've sat with many young men, godly men, sat in circles with them as they wept over the addiction they have to pornography as it grabs a hold of their life. Now, we often talk about it in terms of men, but statistics say a third of women struggle with pornography. And here's what I know. So many in this room are struggling. So many have struggled. It wants to dominate. It wants to take over. All the statistics, everything I see. I sit with so many people in their marriages who've come to me and say, hey, our marriage is struggling. And as you dig in, the issue is lust, pornography, because it's a sin that you can hide. You can pretend like nobody will see it. Nobody will know it. Oh, but it leaks all over the place. How you view people, how you interact with people, when you walk into a place, how you see them, all these things change. As a person becomes more and more dominated by lust. 25% of married women worry that their husband is viewing pornography and not telling them. 37% of all internet activity falls into this category. Daily, over 3 billion, there's only 7 billion people on earth, 3 billion emails are sent containing these videos. Adultery is increased by 300% with pornography being viewed. The majority of married addicts end in divorce. They're saying it's become an acceptable sin. Acceptable sin means it's a sin that we look at and we go, everybody's doing it, it's sort of all right. Everybody gossips a little. Not that big a deal gossip, it's sort of acceptable. Everybody tells a small lie, it's not that big a deal. They're putting lust to pornography in that category. 47% of Christians, 47% of Christians think it's okay and even beneficial to look at. Every second, 30,000 people are watching, looking. 30,000 more people every single second. $3,000 is spent every second. One in three men say it's okay for teenagers to look at this. Half of all people think it's okay for adults to look at this. 62% of 13-year-olds have been exposed. Again, my statistics are probably largely based in the Western world. 90% of people ages 8 to 16 have viewed it. The average age of exposure is 11. 75% of parents say, my child hasn't seen it. 
But of those 75% of parents who say my child hasn't seen it, 53% of their children confess to having seen it. This is pandemic. This is ripping people apart. This is bringing great damage to their souls and the enemy wants to take a Christian and he wants to neutralize them. He wants to get them enslaved to sin and realize this, God's grace is great. His mercy is rich. He wants us to live in victory over sin. He has victory over sin and we can walk in that victory. His grace will forgive you. It is enough. Because here's what I know. Some of you right now are feeling this. You're hoping this sermon will end quicker. You're hoping Jesus, you're wishing we weren't in this part of the passage. Some of you are feeling it. But know this. God's grace is great. And know this. Sin that begins to dominate leads to misery. And Jesus wants to set you free. God made you. He created you. He knows how you're designed to live. So he wants you to live in the way he's created you. Addictions to lust and pornography raises depression, creates a wrong view of humans, increases violent, aggressive behavior, impacts marriages greatly. I want to read to you a passage. I'm just going to read this one. I'm not going to offer any commentary on it. I think it speaks for itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 through 5. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I know this for certain too, sadly. There are many marriages in here that are struggling. And they're struggling because you've got a wrong view of marriage. You think it's about you. Marriage is not about you. It's about God's glory and dying to live for another person. You want a great marriage? You die to yourself and live for that other person. Because as long as it's about you, your marriage is going to struggle. And that's what he's talking about. Marriage thrives as we selflessly die for another person. That's what it's about. It's not about you. To our young people, to our singles who are thinking, hey, I'll be happy when I get married. Life will be great then. It's all about dying to self. And if you aren't dying to self, if you think marriage is going to deliver something God didn't make it to deliver, marriage is not intended to make you happy. It may bring that side benefit, but that's not its purpose. Its purpose is to make you holy, to make you like Christ, to glorify God. That you're on a mission with another person, and you die for that person. If your marriage is struggling, don't look at that other person as the problem. I'm not saying that they're not part of it. And I'm not saying there's things in marriages that are cataclysmic. Abuse and things can be cataclysmic. But you've got to look at yourself first. Typically, we're the problem. 
We'll see more on marriage next week as Jesus continues on. In verse 29, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better to lose one member of your body than your whole body be thrown in hell. If your uh, right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Now this is meant to be shocking. You should be going, does Jesus really mean to cut my eyes out if I'm struggling with this? Does Jesus really mean to cut my hand off? What he's saying is this. If the option is go to hell or get rid of your eye, and trust Christ. Decision's pretty easy. But pulling your eyes out, cutting off your hands, have no ability to save you. To mutilate your body has no ability to do that. He's not saying it for that reason. He's saying it to shock you, to make you go, this is terrible, this is awful, this will destroy us. And to throw yourself on the mercy of God and to run to Him. Job said this, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. What our eyes see impact us. What our hands do impact us. See, we're to seek to live holy. If your application from this is to want to cut off your eye or cut off your hand, something's wrong. We'll talk about that later. Please come see me before you do those things. I don't think that's going to happen. But he wants to shock you. He wants you to know this is serious. Take this seriously. The things that Jesus talks about more than anything else, the sins that seek to dominate us, sex and money. All sin wants to dominate, but those two sins want to rule you and have more power to rule you than many of the sins that we see throughout Scripture. And Jesus is dealing with this. He's talking about this. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But when each one is tempted, he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when the sin is accomplished, it brings death. That's what Jesus is talking about. In your sin, Satan wants to keep you in your sin, keep you from ever repenting of your sin, keep you from ever trusting Christ, because then you'll go to death. But let me tell you, if you're a Christian here, if you recognized your sin, agreed with God, God, what you call sin, I call sin, and I see it in my life. And I know I have no hope in my own self-righteousness of dealing with it. I only have Jesus. He's all I've got. And I cling to Him. If you've trusted in Christ, Scripture says you're a new creation, you're born again. And you are forgiven of every sin you ever have and ever will commit. That's glorious good news. There's no sin you can commit that will remove your forgiveness. Because your forgiveness isn't based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus has done. Yet if you're a Christian who continues to walk in sin and struggle with sin, you're not walking the way that God intended you to walk with other people and in this life and with Him. You're not experiencing the fullness. You're, in a sense, depriving yourself of the fullness that God has for you. He has something so much more glorious and wonderful for you. And it's as we confess our sin and seek forgiveness that He empowers us to walk apart from sin. Let me tell you, 
Jesus declared a secured victory on the cross over sin. And if you're here today as a Christian, that victory can be given to you by Christ. You can walk in victory over sin. But sometimes it's going to take some bold actions. You may need to go confess to a brother or sister in Christ, hey, I'm struggling with anger. Hey, I'm, I'm struggling with lust. You may need to go confess those things. That starts to break the stronghold. You may need to get somebody to say, hey, help hold me accountable. But more than that, you need to see the majesty and the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And you, you have to look at him and go, he's more glorious than anything in this world. I want to be like him. I want to live for him. I want to follow him. I want to pursue him more than anything. And anything that's going to get my way of Christ, I want it removed. As Christ becomes your greatest desire, the strongholds of sin begin to fall away. And the Holy Spirit begins to bring power to live in victory. Church, I know this is something, if we're all honest with ourselves, it hits. I don't apologize for that because Jesus didn't. But what I want for myself, what I want for my family, what I want for you all, what I want for our church, is that we're people who walk in victory in Christ, that we love Him, that we glory in Him, that our interactions with one another are a reflection of what He's done in our life. And that we're able to walk in victory over the strongholds of sin. Not because of how great we are. Not because of our willpower. It won't work. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is working in us as we seek and walk and love Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to be bold. Some of you may need to go talk to someone. You may need to confess to someone. Some marriages may need to have some conversations. But God works in it through this. He is glorified. And that's how we want to live. We want to live how He's designed us and made us to live. So church, as Jesus is in His Sermon on the Mount speaking, He speaks right to us today. Though these words were spoken 2,000 years ago, they have not changed. The shock of them hasn't changed. The impact hasn't changed. And yet the freedom he offers hasn't changed. Let's pray. God, I thank you. Thank you that you are God. Thank you that you're worthy of glory. You're worthy of honor. You're worthy of praise, Lord. And we confess we are small and we're feeble. We struggle with uh, addictions. We struggle with sin. It wants to entangle us. It wants to get us, Lord. And we confess that we have been angry. Or we confess, even for the person who hasn't struggled with the issue we talked about with pornography, Lord, we confess that we struggle with lust. Yet, Lord, we have a victorious Savior. Don't let us forget that. We have grace that is immeasurable. Grace that forgives us. Grace that empowers us. So, Lord, may we know your grace at such a level that we extend it to one another. May we taste your grace so deeply that the bitterness of sin causes us to run and to flee 
and to say no more. Lord, may our souls find their deep longing and satisfaction in Christ. Lord, there are some here today who need uh, to repent and turn and, and some things, Lord, I pray they have the boldness to do. And Lord, there's some others who may have never trusted in the grace that is extended through Christ. I pray that your spirit would awaken them to life and convert them and redeem them and that they would place their faith and trust in you. We pray all this in the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus. Amen.